This podcast was made with Descript. Descript is a groundbreaking new media tool that allows creators to edit audio and video like a text document and create a realistic clone of their own voice for seamless edits. Please check out our Patreon at Asian Hustle Network. We want Asians to continue being meaningful and give back to the Asian community. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to contribute to our feature, we hope you become a patron. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And today we have Tammy Cho. Tammy is the CEO and founder of Better Brave. She's also the co-founder and CEO of Hate the Virus. Tammy, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on this show, Tammy. Yeah, excited to be here. Super excited to have you, Tammy. So can you start off by telling us, like, what was your upbringing like? You know, where did you grow up? What kind of Asian-style parents did you have? You know, we want to hear a lot more about that. (laughs) Yeah, that's a a lot to unpack. Um, (laughs) Yes, I grew up in Orange County, California. Um, basically all my childhood and life. Mm-hmm. And then I um, moved to DC to attend Georgetown University. Um, and then the tech life brought me out to San Francisco for about five years. And then mm-hmm. now I'm based out in LA officially. Wow. Um, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. And so what about your family? Like, would you say that they're very like a traditional family? You know, did they have like, a life that was kind of like set out for you? Like, did they envision you to go through a certain route or were they very supportive in like anything that you wanted to do? That's a really good question. Um, My parents were uh, immigrants from South Korea. Um, So they had moved to America just a couple years before I was born. And um, they were small business owners. So they ran dry cleaning businesses um, and then a liquor store for most of my childhood. Uh, So I basically grew up in a liquor store. Um, And in terms of career paths and decisions, life decisions generally, I think they were a lot more traditional. So um, I think because they wrestled with the challenges of being a small business owner and knowing how challenging that is, um, they definitely envisioned a better life for us. And that better life was very much tied to the traditional stable career paths of becoming a lawyer Mm -hmm. um, or becoming a doctor. And so those were definitely the paths that my parents encouraged me to follow Mm -hmm. um, growing up and were definitely not the paths that I ended up taking. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so before you had started all of these amazing companies, you know, were you doing something before you went into the the nonprofit world or, you know, did you ever have like a nine to five? Yeah. So I started my first company as a college student at Georgetown. Um, Yeah. So I was working on different startup projects. I didn't really know what the tech world or like what startups even were um, at the Mm -hmm. time when I was in high school, but I actually started working on startups technically when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. And then when I got to college, um, I ended up teaming with a couple, teaming up with a couple of friends to Mm -hmm. just start the side project. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, 
and for me, like, I was just thinking about it as like, I really care about this problem. It seems like with the, with our team members, we might be able to do something to solve it. And mm -hmm. so we kind of just like started hacking away at the problem. Mm -hmm. And, um, before we knew it, you know, it, we, we were sharing our idea, trying to get feedback from our mentors, mm -hmm. um, at the university mm -hmm. and they, actually pointed out to us that this idea really had some potential. Yeah. Wow. So our professors then start to introduce us to um, other investors as well as other mentors. Mm -hmm. And uh, those conversations, I mean, there were quite a few, we've probably had hundreds of conversations at that point, mm -hmm. but that ultimately enabled us to be able to um, apply to an accelerator program and get accepted mm -hmm. to actually focus and work on the startup. That's amazing. And for a, a frame of reference, is back when you were 18? You were like, you're 18? Yeah, 17, 18. That's amazing. That's amazing. What yeah. was that mindset like? You know, like feeling that your idea could become realistic and that you guys are working with investors. Like, what was it going through your mind at the time? Yeah. You know, funny enough, I think that there is something to the being naive at that point mm -hmm. where I think I. You know, I knew I was young. I recognized that I was young. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, and being young, like I knew that I, there was so much for me to learn. And I think having that open mind and that willingness to learn from mentors and other members of our community, other founders, mm -hmm. I think actually ended up being a strength in terms of being able to work on this company. I've definitely had a fair share of challenges related to the fact that I was so young mm -hmm. um, that we can dive into a bit later too. But mm -hmm. uh, I think there was a lot of um, really grateful for the startup community for supporting us as college entrepreneurs too. Yeah, that's, that's, that's amazing, you know. And as you're going through this process, like what were your parents thinking about you, what, you being a part of this business? Mm -hmm. Yeah, my parents didn't take it very seriously <laughs> um, when I first started working on it. Mm -hmm. um, and well, to be honest, too, I think uh, you know, seeing how hard my parents had worked to provide for us, you know, we didn't grow up with much, and I knew like how hard it was on them, um, how hard difficult it was running these uh, business, this business. Um, and so when I saw that, I basically made this like commitment with myself it wasn't any pressure from parents but mm -hmm. i wanted to be able to um you know once i go to college like be able to provide for myself and so i got a full ride to georgetown and then any other expenses that i had i basically took on like five different odd jobs to <laughs> um to pay pay the bills while i was there but basically i like took a very independent approach once i hit college and I didn't want my parents to worry. So mm -hmm. I think I played a role in downplaying what I was working on actually. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I framed it to them as like, oh, here's like a little side project that I'm working on with friends <laughs> and mm -hmm. you know, it might be a business, but like we're kind of seeing how things go. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, they were initially supportive because they didn't really know what I was doing, but they, yes. they just assumed it was like some fun side project I was doing on with friends that was, semi-productive <laughs> mm -hmm. um but then fast forward some time i actually had to come back to them to break the news that i was going to be leaving school yeah. to focus on this company full-time mm -hmm. um and that's when things completely shifted my parents were you know obviously supported it as a side project mm -hmm. but 
after realizing that this is something I might be leaving school for, definitely shifted their world a bit. Um, And that was a very challenging um, time for us to (laughs) figure out what to do next. Yeah. Was there like a transition period where you were like, okay, I need to focus on one thing, right? Like school mm-hmm. might be taking up too much of my time mm-hmm. and maybe I need to leave and, you know, put 100% into my business that I'm working on. And, and to take it back one more step too, like, what is your opinion of school? Yeah. You know, I feel like that sort of played into your decision to leave. You know, as you're meeting more entrepreneurs out there, you're, you're starting to realize like, hey, look, you can, there's so much more to be learned in the real world compared to school, you know? Yeah, that's a good question and kind of controversial, but (laughs) um, yeah, I think in terms of my perspective on school, um, I do, I have, I definitely have mixed feelings in regards to it. Um, And it was, you know, I I do see the value of school for some, and then for others, you know, maybe school potentially might not be the best path. Or maybe there's ways that like education generally can be improved um, uh, to to cater to people who might break out of school because it doesn't align with them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I would say like it was it was interesting for me too because you know I went to uh, I went to a public school in Orange County, but it was a unique model where you had to test to get in to attend um, this, this high school, middle school, high school combination. And um, it was very, very focused on academics. And like, mm-hmm. all that you think about is how to get good grades, how to have like um, a great, uh, you know, testing score so that you can get into these uh, universities, mm-hmm. these top tier universities. And that's where everybody's head was at, including mine at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to, to realize that, I spent all this time working towards getting to university and then coming to a point where as I'm attending school and working on this project, I, I had to, I realized that, yeah, like, there's just no way I can do both. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of the reason was because one, um, you know, academics, I also am for Enneagram for people who know Enneagram, I'm type three, I'm an achiever. And so I, if I put my heart into something, like I want to excel at it. And so mm-hmm. for me, I think for schoolwork, um, there was a part of me, if I was working on it, I want to be able to dedicate all the time to it and get good grades. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, um, on the other hand, I'm working on this project. I like truly believe in the potential mm-hmm. of this to kick off mm-hmm. um, and that is solving a real need. And mm-hmm. I want, I find myself dedicating so much time to it as well. Yeah. And I was working like, 70 70 hour work weeks basically 70 80 hour work weeks yeah. to mm-hmm. try to fit both the company as well as um school at the yeah. same time mm-hmm. and so i was already feeling like i was already thinking about like hmm, i feel like i probably should pick one to focus mm-hmm. on for now yeah. um and then the tipping point was actually because we um, were then able to raise funding from mm-hmm. Uh, a round of funding from angel investors and raised over a quarter of a million dollars 
for this initial round. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the tipping point for me to make a decision on, am I going to stay in school and mm-hmm. give up the startup or am I going to focus on the startup full time and then take a break from school? Mm-hmm. Wow. That's, that's a powerful story, you know, yeah. and it's so powerful, especially for us in the Asian hustle community to hear this because a lot of us give up on our startup ideas while in college. You know, a lot of us may or may not been able to create like super companies in college because we listen to our parents and the safe path is to stay in school, get good grades, get a job first and then figure out your company, you know, and mm-hmm. because your story is so unique that, you know, you come, you have such a hustler mentality that you came into college and you're like, Hey, I want to make sure like my parents are not paying for anything. If I had to work random jobs, I want to make sure I stay fully independent. That's really powerful too. And what makes it even more unique is, you know, your courage, you know, your courage to stand up for what you believe for and go for it and look at where you are now. You know, a lot of people want to be where you are right now. They, they want to be Tammy Cho. They want to experience things that you experienced too, you know? Because in, in our opinion, I always feel like, you know, a lot of us follow the traditional path, right? You know, we go to college, get good grades, graduate, get a good job. And then we, and then we find ourselves sort of depressed. Because it's like, oh man, like, I have a lot of people in the Asian Hustle Network always say, I never lived life the way I wanted to. And by that time, it's in their late 20s, mm-hmm. early 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever, right? And you've shown that, hey, you could succeed in an unconventional path. And I absolutely agree with you with the education perspective, you know? I feel like the education system is not for everyone. It, it, it really depends on you as a person. Like, what kind of type are you? And you know your type. You're the achievement type. You know that you don't need to have someone tell you what to do. You know what to do. And that's so powerful for people to hear this story and to sort of emulate you walking forward that there's more than one path to succeed in life instead of one, you know? Our parents are so dead set on us being doctors, lawyers, engineers, you know, accountants, that they forget about us being happy, that America is truly the land of opportunity. There's so much opportunity out there that you just have to go for it and pursue it. Yeah. So I had props to that, Tammy. Yeah. And I think it's really powerful too, because, you know, a lot of people, they like to dip their toes in a lot of different areas. Mm-hmm but they burn themselves out, you they know? Do. And if you're giving 50% into something and 50% into another thing, you never truly give your 100% into one thing. And I like that you were able to make that realization. Like I have to focus on my business because I want to see it grow, you know? And in a lot of cases, people miss out on those opportunities. Mm-hmm. Like they'll be like, hey, I, I, I feel like I need to finish school because my parents want me to finish school. And what if they had that opportunity like right next to school, but they missed it? while they were in school you know yeah so. i'm pretty sure a lot of us can relate to the fact that oh man i had that i had the idea when i was in college but i didn't pursue it because yeah. i was scared you know? yeah. myself included you know there's a lot of different ideas that i saw blow up i'm like god i was thinking back about that back <laughs> in college um yeah but yeah i, I kind of I want to transition and dive into your experience of being a, such an early founder you know yeah. found a company at 7, 17 18 how'd you meet your co-founders how'd you vet them and like, what is your experience like raising money as a female entrepreneur that's yeah. pretty young? Yeah. On top of that, being female and a member of minority too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was definitely challenging 
Um, one quick thing I did want to add to your to your last points, though, was just in regards to um, you know testing. I do think it is important to test out different mm-hmm. fields that you might be interested in. Yeah. Um, I think that's oftentimes the first step, right? Like even for me, I was a college student and on the side, I started working on this company. Mm-hmm. And from then, I think I was then able to realize over time that this is something I want to shift my focus fully onto. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the things that stops people too, is it just stops the idea, right? And you get scared about the execution. But I think if there's anything um, that I can, I've, I can share that I've learned from my experience is that if you just take that one step, even if it's as a side hustle, you may never know where it leads. You might drop it and that's fine too. You may never follow through with it and that's okay. You realize it's probably because you realize that it's not worth pursuing further. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, you might realize that's something that you want to focus on for the rest of your life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then in regards to the um, starting a company <laughs> as a college entrepreneur, um, that was really um, a, a huge, huge learning experience for me. And as I mentioned, I didn't know anything about the tech industry or the startup world because, mm-hmm. um, you know, we ha- almost fell into it mm-hmm. because we were just, you know, listening to the advice of our mentors, being open-minded and pivoting according to the advice that we were receiving. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, we only then after starting to work on this company found the label of like, oh, we're actually working in a startup in tech. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. But in a, in a way, I think that was almost, that was one of the strengths for us too, just yeah. being, because we were truly just focused on like, yeah. how can we execute rather than getting caught up in like, oh, I want to be this cool entrepreneur yeah. in like mm-hmm. the hot new industry. Yeah. Um, we were just really just trying to figure out how can we address these issues. Yeah. Um, and the challenges that I did come across um, being a young founder and also being a woman and a person of color mm-hmm. was there were definitely a lot of microaggressions that I experienced mm-hmm. um, in the industry. And so I had two um, incredible male co-founders, um, Felipe Lopez, who was our CTO and James Lee, who was the CEO of the company. Mm. Um, and they're wonderful. But, you know, when we went to, to, for instance, startup events and we were exhibiting Encore Alert, mm. um, our company, um, there'd be little things like the VCs that would walk by our booth um, would first talk to me. Um, they'll immediately assume that I'm an intern. And then when they realize I'm a founder, <laughs> um, they'll kind of ask, like, are, do you have any other founders? Like, and you can clearly tell their mood and the way they talk shifts when they're talking to a male founder. Um, another, another clear example was even in regards to a fundraising process um, when VCs were reviewing um, how much equity each of the founders have. Mm-hmm. Um, they oftentimes wanted to push my equity down among the three founders. Mm-hmm. And the reasons they would cite would be reasons like, um, for instance, uh, the fact that I was a college dropout <laughs> made them concerned. <laughs> um, you know, it, which is fair in one sense, but on the other hand, you also see a lot of male founders who've dropped out of college. And then that's actually seen as a positive, right? Yeah. Talk to 
uh, describe them as like the next Mark Zuckerberg or the next yeah. Bill Gates. Yeah. And meanwhile, it's a red flag uh, for me. For the founder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so those are a lot of the challenges that are just some of the challenges that I had experienced being um, in the industry mm-hmm. and, you know, part and I think it was only over time being in the industry for so long, I finally started to have conversations with other female founders and recognized that this was actually a very common behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and even especially in regards to the equity gap, for instance, mm-hmm. research studies actually show that female founders um, oftentimes have less equity than their male co-founders. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a huge gap. They call it the equity gap mm-hmm. uh, in, in that regards. And that applies to employees as well. So when male employees are more likely to have um, higher equity than uh, female employees. Yeah, that's really disheartening to hear, yeah. you know, especially coming, <laughs> especially you coming as a co-founder. You know, mm. I feel like you did your equal part, you know. Did you, you didn't, you didn't step back, you didn't step down, did you? Did you like stand your ground and be like, yeah. no, what are you talking about? Yeah. I, I deserve my equal share. <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering like how you were able to react to those type yeah. of instances and like if you ever said anything or if it was like more uh-huh. of like a self-affirmation kind of thing, like just don't mind them, you know, do your mm-hmm. own thing. Like how were you able to respond to those type exactly. of comments? Yeah, that's a great question and I huge learning experience for me. I did not, to be honest, did not take much action against that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I was one of the very few female founders in the DC tech scene at the time. Mm-hmm. There's probably like two or three female founders that like were yeah. consistently at these events. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're incredible, but there are very little of us. And this was not a topic at the time that we discussed yeah. as much. And mm-hmm. so I actually felt very isolated and alone in that. You know, my, my co-founders were supportive, but I think I didn't even know how to really verbalize how I was feeling about this. Mm -hmm. And at the time it was even hard for me to realize what was wrong. It just felt off, but a lot of it, I took it upon myself where I felt like, oh, I was the problem. And I almost felt like I was bringing the rest of the team down Mm -hmm. because I was on the team. And, you know, and when they suggested pulling the equity down, I didn't fight back because- Yeah. Yeah. Because I think I I voiced that I was, it felt off to me, but then at the same time, I think I didn't really know, you know, I just gave them benefit of the doubt and I didn't want to pose like any additional barriers in terms Mm -hmm. of getting, securing funding for our team. Um, And so kind of took it as like, take one for the team and decrease my equity you know, fast forward to where I am now, like, hell no, that's not going to fly with me. Right? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I, th- and I've learned so much of that. And, mm-hmm. and I think that experience is one of the huge reasons behind why I work on the initiatives that I do today as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, it was definitely a learning experience for me. Yeah. I think it's very easy to, you know, even if you're young or if you're not, like if you're a person of color, a member of a minority working in the workforce, and you see that you have a lower salary than the other person who may be like white, you know, it's very easy to be like, you know, maybe I'm not doing my part. Maybe I'm, you know, putting the team down. Maybe I need to do more. Right. So I think it's very easy to kind of get those two ideas mixed up and, you know, put it on yourself. Right. But I think now, like, 
jumping fast forwarding to now, we see, you know, with Better Brave, like Better Brave is mm-hmm. was started with all women, right? Yeah. And I think that's really important. And I think, you know, you coming to that realization and you coming back, bouncing back with a company that's like full of women, I think that's really powerful. And to just build on top of that too. I'm very, very mad hearing this story, you know, <laughs> because if I was your co-founder at the time, I'd be like, hell no, no one's decreasing time you share. <laughs> just the way I am in, in general, you know, but I'm really sorry that happened. And yeah. I think that even for us working towards Asian Hustle Network, we have this huge initiative to empower women entrepreneurs inside a community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And any way that we could support through AMA sessions, you know, the last couple of winners that we gave away a thousand dollars to have been female entrepreneurs. You know, it's a strong initiative for us. I mean, I always felt like even this is a funny story. I always felt like back in school, girls are so much smarter than me and academically. I'm like, man, it must not be it must not be that smart, man. They are, they are. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, but I'm really happy like you're you're okay now. Like you learned yeah. from that mistake that you're using this experience to build forward and never let this happen again. Mm-hmm. And I do want to dive a little deeper into like how you found your co-founders. Like mm-hmm. How did you vet them? How did you meet them? Like What kind of prior relations did you have with them before you started working together? Yeah. So uh, one of my co-founders um, I knew since high school, mm-hmm. actually. So we were part of the same business organization. And so uh, he was a few older, a few years older than I was, but mm-hmm. we're in the same business organization and got connected um, one of the summers uh, because he was starting a different company at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, over the summer while like everyone else was doing SAT uh-huh. <laughs> prep, uh, funny enough, it was like too expensive for me to attend these like prep academies. And that's mm-hmm. why I like looked for other projects to work on. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was a blessing in disguise. Um, and I came across this opportunity to work with this friend. Um, and then uh, we ended up working on that for about, I believe it was about two summers. And then by that time, um, it was around the time for me to go to college. And I ended up going to Georgia University, which was the same university that he was at. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then we uh, continued to work on different ideas together and ended up um, landing on one, which was Encore Alert. Um, it was a different idea at the time, but what it eventually evolved into was, um, it was a social media analytics platform where we basically were able to smartly identify, uh, look through all the social media data for these big brands and identify key opportunities and, uh, and issues, PR crises that they need to address as soon mm-hmm. as possible and would send them alerts. Um, but teamed up with um, this founder, uh, this friend to start that. And then we, you know, uh, we needed to find someone who was technical to be able to build the product as well. Mm-hmm. And so how we found our third co-founder is actually through a platform called AngelList. Um, I love AngelList. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great platform. I haven't used it since, but <laughs> <laughs> so many years back. But yeah, we posted... Um, on this platform where it connects founders to other people who are interested in roles in tech. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and a few different people responded, including Felipe Lopez. Mm-hmm. Um, we 
then jumped on a call with him. I'm not even sure if at the time he like realized we were college students <laughs> in our dorm rooms, just um, interviewing people. But uh, we jumped on a call with him. We ended up doing a, a short-term contract with him just to see how we can work well together or not. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, by the end of that period, we knew that he was the one. <laughs> um, we worked really well together. Um, he was incredibly smart, um, just in terms of the way he thinks about uh, just technical infrastructure and architecture um, mm -hmm. was what we were looking for. And so we ended up teaming up um, after that. And then shortly after, um, we got accepted into another startup accelerator program that required all of us to be present live in person in DC. <laughs> wow. And so uh, Felipe was actually based out of Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we flew him from Brazil to wow. DC for this program. Oh, wow. yeah. That's insane. Yeah. And yeah, that's, that's really cool, you know, just yeah. to hear about like, how things come about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. like, uh, most challenges that early entrepreneurs start especially if you're not technical is how do you find a technical co-founder yeah you know? and mm -hmm. most ideas die right there it's <laughs> like it's like oh i can't start this project because i don't have a technical co-founder but you guys figure out a way to do it because you're so passionate about the idea that you want to start that you found a way to do it you know and that's that's amazing you know and just be able to start thinking about solutions instead of problems that's a gift in its own you know like when you can start looking at what you currently have what you're missing how to find it that's mm -hmm. when we start solving the problems and that's how you become a true entrepreneur. Yeah. You know? We always talk about how like finding a co-founder, it's like marrying that person, right? It's, it's pretty like much dating that person. Yeah. It's or, like dating. Yeah. But yeah. you know, I think the best people who work together most efficiently and the best is like, you guys are on the same page and you guys are seeing the long-term vision. You know, obviously there mm -hmm. are arguments that happen, but that's always like short-term. Those mm -hmm. are always temporary. They're never personal yeah. to yeah. co-founders because mm -hmm. you are going to have disagreements. And I find that when working with a team, if things go too well, that means things are swept under, under the rug. Mm -hmm. and nothing, mm -hmm. That means a bigger yeah. underlying issues that's going on. Yeah. You know? That's true. But yeah, I mean, I, I do want to talk a little bit more about like, some of the early mistakes that you made. Mm -hmm. I know one of them was lowering your equity, which I'm still very mad about, by the way. <laughs> yeah. about that. Um, but we just want to hear a little more about like other mistakes and lessons learned that we can take away from your experience. Yeah. Um, I think another big lesson um, that we learned over time, just based off of like very early projects that we're working on. Um, so I think that sometimes there's a tendency, especially um, among founders and even like creatives mm -hmm. where we get really excited about an idea, mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily solving a real problem. <laughs> and yeah. we get more with this idea than figuring out how we're trying to address a major issue that's going on. Um, and so I think that's one of the lessons that we learned, which was to, to really try to identify the needs of who we're trying to serve mm -hmm. um, and then build a product around that rather mm -hmm. than the other way around. Um, and the reason I say that too is because uh, there were definitely, uh, when we first entered the accelerator program in DC, mm -hmm. um, 
you know, it's a, it was a four month long program. The first three months you're basically, and during the bulk of the program, you're basically paired with different mentors. You're working on your concept idea. Um, and the goal is by the end of um, that period, you then pitch your company to a bunch of different uh, VCs and angel investors to get funding, to get actual seed funding. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when we first went into this program, um, they actually gave us funding saying that they are giving us funding because they believe in the team, not necessarily the idea. And the major flaw with the idea was that we were building a great solution that we felt like was brilliant, but in actuality, it wasn't really solving a huge need that people would be willing to pay for. And so um, during that program, we quickly pivoted. Um, we pivoted basically like a month before we had to pitch to the VC. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. Um, which was, it was a madhouse, super stressful, but also really rewarding. Um, and then within that month, we were able to build a very simple uh, first version of the product mm-hmm. and um, we pitched it to prospective customers and were able to get them to commit to a contract um, all before a fundraising day. And so then um, when we actually pitched the concept that day, um, we had VCs and investors that were interested in funding us and we were able to raise more money after that wow. and have actual customers. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Sounds yeah. like it happened so quickly. I know. I think a lot of people get like the shiny object syndrome, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. you want to do this, you want to do that. Like that's the next fad, right? But people don't do like market research. Like, is it actually going to solve an issue mm-hmm. that people are experiencing or is it just like something you want to focus on? Yeah. But I'm glad to hear that you guys were able to pivot in such a short amount of time. And, um, and shout out to yeah. our friend Patrick Lee for telling <laughs> us to focus. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's one of those times where yes. we to focus. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, I mean, fast forward a little bit more, like when you guys sold your company, you know, at the age of, I'm pretty sure acquisition happened around when you were 20, finished you in 21, right? And what was that process like? And what was that feeling like when you're about to sell this company? And why did you sell the company? Yeah. Um, so that was a very interesting time for us as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we were going through our second accelerator program called 500 Startups out in the Bay Area. Um, and close to the end of that program, um, the CEO of Meltwater, which is the company that acquired us, um, happened to be speaking at 500 Startups to the entrepreneurs there. Um, and we were doing introductions. And when he heard about what our product was, mm-hmm. Certainly, see his eyes light up because um, I think it was a product that he internally was very interested in building out, and then realizing that a product like this was already in the works made him very excited. Mm-hmm. Um, and from there, things initially like moved pretty quickly. Um, we set up an initial conversation with them, which was meant to be like a, just exploring partnerships with them, not necessarily acquisition. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had a partnership meeting, introduced our product. They introduced their company as well. Um, And that's how the conversation started. Mm -hmm. Um, Pretty soon it was more apparent that they were interested in acquiring our company. And from there it became a discussion internally about what we wanted to do next. Mm -hmm. Did we want to raise another round of funding to continue working on this company privately? Um, Or did we want to uh, merge and be acquired uh, or did we want to be acquired by Meltwater during mm-hmm. this time? 
And there are a couple different factors that we looked at for this. Um, one, I think we want to get a better idea. Um, it required a lot of self-reflection too, right? But we needed to think about like in terms of our respective life visions, did we see ourselves working on this company forever um, mm -hmm. and this mission forever? Or were there something, was there something else that we might want to explore down the road? Mm -hmm. um, we also had to evaluate where we were as a company. And to be honest, at the time, we weren't doing fantastic, right? Like we had, um, we had 10 employees at that point, but it was still, um, and we had a great product. We had, you know, all the customers that signed up for a product, we had very little churn and turnover, mm -hmm. but in terms of acquiring new customers, that was not necessarily a strength from our team. Mm -hmm. um, and so we felt like potentially this might be a good time for us to transition this um, to a more established company so that, you know, one, we know that they have the sales bandwidth and the knowledge to be able to distribute our product to the right customers. Mm -hmm. um, and then two, we could also learn from that experience of how they do that. Um, mm -hmm. And also learn from the experience of being acquired and what that transition looks like as well. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and then the last piece that we looked at was the offer and you know, the arrangement was structured in a way that we can continue to operate our product mm -hmm. under this new company, yeah. which is actually unique because a lot of times you'll find acquisitions where they'll either dissolve. It's more like an aqua hire where they just hire the, um, they like technically acquire the company, but um, those employees just join as an employee mm -hmm. um, and work on the new company's products. And then they basically have to abandon ship for their uh, startup product. Mm -hmm. um, but for us, we were in this unique position where we could actually, as a team, join Meltwater mm -hmm. and operate our own product within their umbrella. Mm -hmm. And so considering all of that, um, you know, we talked, had many conversations with the team about it and then decided to take the path of acquisition. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. Congratulations, by yeah, the way. Congratulations. <laughs> At age 21, that's amazing. I know. That's, that's <laughs> truly amazing. It's really inspirational to hear. Yeah. You know, it, it's about, because everything to us, like it, it sounds like everything happens so quickly in a three to four year range mm -hmm. about who you are, basically a high schooler, to your ideas of what's possible, to defying your parents, to mm -hmm. taking this risk, to leaving college, you know, just moving to San Francisco to start this company and then get acquired like that's 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 really amazing you know and you know obviously you're, you're full-time right now doing better brave and mm -hmm. you know co-founder hate the virus like what made you decide to leave meltwater and start a new venture because for most people you went through their entire life goal in four years <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the, the question after you achieve your goal is always like okay what makes me happy what's next mm -hmm. you know you really want to dive into that mindset too at the time like what made you what made you want to leave this you know essentially a really great opportunity decent paying job you know and really comfortable life to go out there do this over again and figure yourself out and find new co-founders yeah and you know like in speaking about better brave like how were you able to come up with that you know idea and what was like the inspiration behind it 
mm-hmm. were you already thinking about it when you were at Meltwater? Or, yeah, what, you, know, you also did, want to, no, sorry. Oh yeah, I was just gonna, how, did, how did that idea transpire? Yeah, I also want to understand, like, what was your mental health like at the time yeah. too? Because I feel like mental health is one thing that's never quite talked by the Asian community. Mm-hmm. And the exterior, it may seem like a lot of us are doing really well. You know, mm-hmm. you know, you sold your company or a lot of us have nice jobs, nice cars, whatever. But we're just feeling unhappy inside. And you tell your parents this. And they're like, what? You left this? Now you're leaving that? <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All good questions. And that was such an interesting period of my life, too. So much had happened in, like, the two-year span. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So once um, I was at Meltwater, that was also a really cool experience just getting to learn about how a bigger company operates, you know, like a hundred million dollar company. They um, have thousands of employees around the world. um, And there's so much that we learned in terms of uh, how to operate a business during Mm -hmm. our experience there. Um, With that said, I think, you know, as um, I was working there, and I believe that there's value in the product. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I did think a little bit more in terms of my life vision mm-hmm. and what I care about. Mm-hmm. And I think I like hit a point where I realized, um, I was starting to realize that I don't see myself, you know, doing social media analytics forever as much as it's needed. Like, <laughs> I don't see that as like my calling. Mm-hmm. Um, and And so I was starting to think about like, what are some other areas that I might be uh, be more interested in um, focusing on? And this was not something I was actively looking for. That was in the back of my head. Um, And then uh, in July, let's see, um, I believe it was July 2017, around that time, beginning of 2017, um, you know, I had come across the story of Susan Fowler over at Uber. Mm-hmm. Um, for those who don't know, she was a software engineer at Uber. She had reported numerous incidents of sexism, harassment, bullying mm-hmm. at Uber. Um, every time was met by HR saying that there was nothing they can do because hers was the only complaint. Yeah. Turns mm-hmm. out that there were like dozens of other people who were yeah. also affected by this mm-hmm. behavior. Yeah. And, um, you know, when I saw her story, I realized that I wasn't alone in my experiences. I think, you know, as I mentioned before, with the whole equity conversation too, I think in the moments that I experienced these microaggressions or the sexism or the racism, I, I just, I almost took the blame on myself <laughs> rather than evaluating what was wrong about the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, when I saw her story, and realized that I was not alone and that many other women were experiencing these type of issues, mm-hmm. I felt compelled to do something. And I didn't know what it was going to be, to be honest, but the first step that I took was, again, just really trying to understand this problem and where it stems from. And mm-hmm. so I ended up teaming up with um, one of my coworkers at the time to uh, interview people. We just had hundreds of conversations with other women and men, uh, mm-hmm people, you know, employees, lawyers, HR experts, just to get a better idea of their experiences in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And every single person that we talked to either had 
a personal experience with this issue yeah. or they knew somebody who experienced harassment mm -hmm. in the workplace. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, hearing all these stories is just impossible. I mean, uh, to not do anything about it. Mm -hmm. and so we looked at what was something, what is a gap that we see? Why is this happening? And mm -hmm. realized one of the first places that we can start was um, address this huge gap in terms of the knowledge that employees have in terms of what their workplace rights are, as well as how to navigate these issues. Mm -hmm. Because the resources that are currently out there to help you understand this are very expensive. And mm -hmm. most of the people who are affected don't have the money to afford those resources. Mm -hmm. and consequently, can't take any action. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, yeah, so taking all of that, basically, it became the foundation and inspiration behind Better Brave. Yeah, I think Better Brave is super essential right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have worked at places before where my female um, co-workers came out to me and be like, hey, I was actually harassed. Like, and then we tried talking to HR and everything and nothing, surprising, nothing really happened. Mm -hmm. You know, I was pretty upset about that. You know, like, it's a, it's a very common thing, especially in Skullcon Valley, to hear about these type of stories. Yeah. yeah. And you're, you're constantly told, whether it's in the media or through just your community, yeah. that, you know, you should report these issues to HR and they should yeah, take care of it, but they don't do anything. Yeah. I, I remember like back in 2017 when that story came out regarding Uber, you know, all of these other stories kind of just started coming up, you know, from random people, whether they be women or men. And then other companies, like employees from other companies started coming out with their stories too. And it just became like a ripple effect mm -hmm. and a movement, right? But then no one, like very few people talk about it because, mm -hmm. you know, there's just like this pride issue. Like they don't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And they feel like, like tell me about how, you know, employers don't really give the resources. Like during onboarding, they don't address that type of issue, right? Like they don't say like, if this and this happens to you, this is what you need to do. You know, mm -hmm. and I love that Better Brave is able to offer those resources. Yeah. Yeah. Like, even for us, as we incorporate Asian Hustle Network, we're going to reach out to Better Brave for more resources. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, by the way. And I think now's a great time to talk about you know, the very new initiative, you know, that yeah. you're a part of. Eight <laughs> is a virus. Yes. Yeah alongside you <laughs> yeah so brian is part of hate is a virus and tammy is part of hate is a virus and it's been i'm the visible partner <laughs> you know it's obvious that you know tammy and michelle are the, are the true beast here <laughs> it's it's so funny because we always like i always see brian doing these videos obviously right and it always takes him like a couple tries but he's always like oh how does tammy do it like it's so she does it like with no mistakes and it's always so eloquent <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, I guess I the question coming from me is like, what has been your experience uh, with hate as a virus? And, you know, the whole movement is just so incredible. And just seeing the beginning of, of the hate as a virus movement transpire, it's, it's been so inspiring, you know, and, you know, similar to the Black Lives Matter movement, this is just like the same thing for Asians, you know, and you know, I'm just very curious, like, what has been your take on it? And, you know, how do you see the future of hate as a virus? And, you know, what kind of work are you planning to put out for this movement? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I think in terms of hate as a virus, it's been 
such an incredible experience um, being able to work on this initiative together with um, Brian and Michelle as well. And the rest of the team, Carrie, so Jessica, um, and so many more, Angela, who are all part of this um, organization as well. And in terms of what the journey has been like a bit, um, you know, when we first started Hate is a Virus, um, I think each of us kind of came together because we cared so much about the issue. We had our respective full-time jobs. We're working on our respective companies, but, you know, similar to with Better Brave, as we saw more of these stories of the hate crimes against Asian Americans uh, come to the surface, we felt like we each felt like we had to do something about it. And then the universe brought us together in a way, and we're able to launch this initi initiative together. Um, to tackle the racism against Asian Americans fueled by COVID-19. Um, and in terms of where we're headed, um, I'm super excited about it as well. So we have, we have three primary pillars for Hate is a Virus. So one piece is awareness. We want to continue to raise awareness of um, the issues of hate and racism against communities through creating, um, you know, really digestible, accessible um, educational content mm -hmm. and publishing that on our social media channels and spreading the word about that in partnership with community organizations, leaders and advocates. Um, the second pillar that we have is related to education. So we realize that it's not enough to just raise awareness of these issues through a hashtag campaign, right? Mm -hmm. um, we need to actually equip our community with tactical strategies on how to take action against this hate and racism. Mm -hmm. And something that's really important to us um, uh, is to really mobilize and equip our Asian American communities to stand up for our own communities as well as other communities, mm -hmm. um, especially in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. And then the final pillar for us and what we're focused on is um, really continuing to fundraise for different causes that are tackling these issues as well. So. We're continuing to raise money for our Raise a Million Fund to support uh, small businesses that have been impacted by COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And we'll be hosting more fundraisers in the future as well to uh, serve wherever we can. That's amazing. So powerful. Great yeah. job to the both of you guys. I know you guys were able to raise almost $20,000 in two hours. So that is super amazing. And I super, um, I fully believe and 100% agree with everything that you said. I feel like as Asians, we need to do our part, you know, and if we're not able to support other communities, then it's very hard for us to see our community grow as well. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, prior to working with Tammy, I always heard the legend of Tammy. <laughs> yeah. People were telling me like, you know, Tammy's super sweet, super smart, super on top of it. And yeah. I was like, who's Tammy? <laughs> you know? Who is this Tammy person I keep hearing about? But you you definitely live up to your reputation. You know, it's been a tr like a true honor to work with you and Michelle. Like you're so smart. You know, you're so sharp in every single way. Like I don't have anything negative to say about you, to be honest. <laughs> and it's super it's, it's a super honor to be working with you on this on this project. Yeah. You know, Thank you so much. One thing I'm kind of curious about too. You know, as you are accomplishing and working on so many things what is your relationship with your parents as, as of this point like what do they think of tammy cho like their daughter 
they look at you and be like, okay, what is Tammy doing? <laughs> Tammy's always doing all these things, you know? <laughs> so what is your relationship with your parents right now? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And thankfully, it's good <laughs> with my parents. <laughs> um, it's funny, I, I was such like a good, good kid growing up. Uh-huh. And then my parents never thought I was going to rebel. And then I guess my form of rebellion was starting a company and leaving school. <laughs> so, yeah. So fast. <laughs> I was saving it up for that moment. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You have to give me a break. I was good up until this time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, at this point, I think my parents have given up (laughs) not on me but just on the fact of like me pursuing a traditional path um I think at this point they um I remember having a conversation with my parents um about less than a year ago actually Mm -hmm. where um they were telling me that they finally realized that we're just from different generations (laughs) and there might actually be more information that I know about this current generation, the current state of the world that they might not be aware of. And so that they have to just trust that Mm. based on that information and they've raised me well enough to be able to take all that in and make decisions for myself, um, no matter how unconventional and rebellious it may seem to them. Um, And I think, yeah, it's been really heartwarming to hear that Mm. from them and hear their encouragement. Mm-hmm. They still like occasionally ask me if I'm planning on like joining Google or <laughs> something at some point. Um, yeah, but generally it's been it's been good. I yeah, love that. That's really awesome to hear yeah. because my mom has had a similar conversation with me, and she was like, she's she sat down she that she sat down next to me and she's like, hey son, there's nothing I can teach you in life anymore. You know, the, the rest is up to you. I fully trust your ability and your character and your sense of righteousness to do the right things when no one's mm-hmm. looking. And that's really powerful. And that story really resonated with me a lot. You know, it's the almost like a handing of the baton or something. Mm-hmm. Next generation to have that trust. And that feels great. You know, like, I'm pretty sure like you can relate to like, all my life. My mom's like, why are you not a doctor? Why are you not a dentist? <laughs> <laughs> you know, can you stop like you stop doing this? Can you stop doing that? You know, but now it's like we have full control, and it's the best feeling in the world. And it's also mm-hmm. also kind of scary at the same time. Mm-hmm. Oh crap! And parents have full trust in me. What would I do with this power? <laughs> I know, <laughs> too much power. Yeah, yeah. I think in yeah. Asian households, it's like very often it's it's common that Asian parents they want to look after us when we're younger, right? Because mm-hmm. they know that they have control over you, mm-hmm. and they've Im- immigrated here, you know, just left everything in their home country, mm-hmm. and they like envision this future for their kids, right? But as we grow older, it's like they get kind of laid back because they don't have that much control anymore. Yeah. I'm yeah. pretty sure by the time we have kids, we're gonna be like, "Why are you not falling down this this path? Yeah. Why are you getting a full time <laughs> job again? I don't get it." Be a <laughs> But That's yeah, amazing. we're super excited to have you in the podcast yeah. today. Yeah. You know, we learned so much about you, so much great stories and like stuff that will affect people looking up to you and want to do the same thing as you, you know? Yeah. So tell me, like, what are the, what is some of the last advice that you can give to early female entrepreneurs who want to proceed down this path, path of entrepreneurship and challenges that, that, that they're going to face? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I think um, I think 
the piece of advice that we give, especially in regards to entrepreneurship generally too, um, is that I think it's very important to focus on your mental health and wellness um, and also do some self-reflection yeah. about why you're making, you know, why you plan to do what you want to do. Mm. Um, because I think oftentimes it's easy to get caught up in what society expects of us or we get caught, caught up in the glamour of being a tech founder or being an entrepreneur, right? I think there's a, an element of glamorizing that occupation now. Um, but I think it's really important to really understand why you're doing it um, and stay grounded in that because the entrepreneurial journey is a series of ups and downs and like the lows are super low, right? Um, and so I think that's really important to recognize. And then the second piece I would say too is to, it's really challenging. I mean, I personally find it challenging, but to continue to practice separating uh, work from your sense of identity and mm. your sense of worth. Um, I think especially for entrepreneurs, oftentimes we feel like if our company is not doing well, we're not capable mm -hmm. um, and we're not enough. But the reality is, is that we're taking huge leaps of faith and taking risks and actually doing something out there, right? And mm -hmm. when we're taking these action steps, it may, you know, we may make mistakes along the way, but that's just part of the journey. And we just need to acknowledge that and you know, forgive ourselves and just keep growing from it. Yeah. That's a very sound Indeed. advice right there. Yeah. yeah. So tell me, um, you wanna Yeah. So how can our listeners learn more about you on social media or anywhere? Yeah. Um, so you can follow our social media handles for the organizations at, um, on Instagram at we are better brave and then at hate of the virus. And then, um, my personal handle is at Tammy Cho on Instagram as well. And then in terms of learning more about our organizations, you can also go to hate virus.world and betterbrave.org. Amazing. Thank you so much for being on this podcast, Tammy. It was great listening to your story. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much, Tammy. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. We're and for honor. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, and all that you do through Asian Hustle Network too. It's just so incredible to see the community that you've built and just, you know, during these crazy times too, just seeing how the community has been really supportive and uplifting each other. Yeah, yeah thank you so much for that. Thanks, Tammy. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.